This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by our NAACP Image Award-nominated book, Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Get it where all books are sold. Brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at Ivy Press and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. Sisters, how y'all feel? Brothers, y'all all right? If this is your first time at Truth's Table, welcome to the table. And if you've been sitting at the table with us all these years, we are so grateful that you have been listening to us through these years. And we are inviting you to partner with us and support our work at patreon.com slash truthstable. Now pull up a chair and have a seat at the table with us. Hey y'all, welcome to Truth's Table, midwives of culture for grace and truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, see How you doing, girl? I am doing. Welcome to 2023, in the year of our Lord God Almighty. In the year <laughs> of our Lord 2023. God Almighty. We made it over. Listen, I sometimes look back and wonder, you know, the lyrics help us. Help us. They absolutely do. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, 2023 is off to a a very strong start. It's fertile. For Truth's Table, you know, for Truth's Table, NAACP Image Award nominated authors. Praise God for that. And and don't think I'm above uh, putting an NAACP Image Award nominee sticker on this big old poster board. Listen, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not above it. On the poster, on the books, on myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no problem. No problem. I was telling somebody, I was like, I think I have reached the age of um, where I do not wait for people to give me stickers. I'm just like, I'm going to give my own stickers. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I give myself my own stickers old. <laughs> your, own, your own gold star. That's right. That's right. So a gold star for you today, Kimberly. What do you say? I said, so you receive your gold star today. Oh, yes, absolutely. Look, Sly the Family Stone said everybody is a star. Listen, so, that's what they said. That's yeah, what they said. They taught us. They taught us. So. And we have a star with us today. A star. Uh, this is a true stable star for us, for sure. Absolutely. A big, big star in Come our house. Come on. And a big get for us. We are so that's happy. Right. Y'all know, first of all, y'all know we are in our Let's Hear It for the Boys series. Um, where we're highlighting brothers that we respect, admire, um, love, and adore. And so, and one of those uh, men at the table is our um, friend and a star in our eyes, uh, Timothy Wellbeck, ESQ. Welcome to the table, Timothy. (laughs) Welcome. What a gracious welcome. I really appreciate y'all. And it is an honor to have an actual seat at the table. I'm usually in the um, waiting room or (laughs) overflow. It is a table by Black women, for Black women. So I sit in the overflow on Saturday morning. Come on, overflow. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Well, just in case y'all don't know who this star is, Come on, Mr. back. I'm gonna tell y'all a little something about this brother right here. Okay, now Timothy Welbeck is the director of the Center of Anti-Racism, in addition to being an assistant professor of instruction at Temple University. 
A civil rights attorney by training, Timothy's work as an attorney and scholar has allowed him to contribute to various media outlets such as CNN, CBS, BBC Radio 4, The Washington Post, The Philadelphia Inquirer, NPR, The Huffington Post, Y, Revolt TV, and many other outlets. Timothy lives in the Philadelphia area with his wife and three children. You may learn more about Timothy by visiting his website at timothywellbeck.com. Welcome to the table, brother Timothy. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It is truly a pleasure. I am so glad to be here this morning. Yes, you know, um, me and Timothy go way back, you do. back in the time. <laughs> My goodness, yeah. 20, 20, I feel like 20, 2013, I feel is like is right because um, my oldest was very small and my youngest was not born yet. So I feel like, yeah, it had to be right around in that in that time frame. Our time in Philadelphia, you know what yeah, I mean? It was right. such a, a special time, you know? And so um, I was, it really was, you know, I've met some amazing people and Timothy mm. is one of them oh, who I know will be a, has been a great friend and I believe will be a lifelong um, friend. And yes, so and uh, so I wanted to, we wanted to bring you on to honor you for all of the amazing things that you do, you know, but I would love, firstly, what I love most about Timothy is his faith mm. and his love for the Lord, mm. but also his love not only for his family and children and then for black people, Come you on. know, to have, to be able to hold all three of those <laughs> together. Impossible. It's very, very important, right? <laughs> you know, and the reason why you're able to hold those things together from what I've observed of your life, I can say this because you're my friend, is that it's because you love the Lord. And so yes. I would love for you to talk to our sisters at the table and our brothers in the standing room section mm -hmm. um, about your own journey and your walk, your faith journey and your walk with Jesus. You know, can you yeah. talk to us about that? So I have the great pleasure of having two parents who believe Proverbs 22 and 6, train up a child in a way that he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. And so I was raised in a church, the Black Pentecostal Church, the Church of God in Christ, to be very specific. You cannot join it. You must be born in it. That's what they and said. so, I, and Memphis Kojic at that. So I'm like Kojic. Kojic. You're Memphis. You Kojic, Kojic. I'm Kojic, Kojic. Um, <laughs> There's levels to this, y'all. It's there levels to it. It really, it, it truly is. And to be honest, I have no active memories of life outside of church. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. um, dutifully, my parents took me to church just about every Sunday, and I was in a full suit even as a baby. Yeah. And um, and that's where I met the Lord. I met the Lord in a Memphis um, Church of God in Christ with creaky floors and a, a preacher who preached the gospel every Sunday. And I will never forget when I was about five, um, not only had, did I have this experience, but God was always real to me. I did, thankfully, I never had these questions early on about mm -hmm. is God real or or coming into the faith in that way. Um, I just always believed, at least from my recollection. And so when I was about five, my, my pastor gave an altar call um, after one of his sermons. And I reached over to my mother and asked if I could go down. And she said, baby, you're a little too young. And so, uh, and then the next week, the same thing happened. And I said, mama, I want to go down. And uh, after that, that happened, maybe two or three times more, she finally said, if you feel, if you really feel that way, you can go. And so I went and I didn't think it was anything substantial. I was responding to 
what I felt like was internal conviction, but it really moved the people in the church because I was a small mm-hmm. child coming yeah. to the altar. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I prayed the sinner's prayer with my pastor and um, been walking with the Lord, trying to be faithful ever since. And um, early on, I, I did not understand progressive salvation and things like that. So I thought I had to get saved every week. So like Sunday would come and I would feel convicted for the things that I knew that I had done wrong through the week. And so I would try to come down to the altar again and and the, and the pastor would use it as a sermon example. He would talk about the childlike faith that Jesus talked about and how we needed to have a sensitivity to the spirit and and to move when we felt convicted and things like that. And again, I wasn't thinking that this was anything notable on my part. I was just responding to the call of God. And and so from there, I spent most of my formative years in a Kojic church from functionally to birth until I um, until I graduated from college. I was pretty much in a Kojic church. We moved to Georgia when I was nine and we started going to um, Bishop Chandler David Owens Church, who became the presiding bishop. So I'm like Kojic, Kojic, y'all. And so we did that. And that's that's where I spent the bulk of my formative years under his leadership. And I went in and then when I went off to Morehouse, I would still go there. Um, on Sundays because I was in close proximity. And then shortly thereafter, I started visiting other churches and things like that. But in a nutshell, the so much you so you talked about my love of the Lord, my love for my family and my love for black people. And so much of the seeds of that, like you said, were sown in the black church. I got to see black people worshiping the Lord truly and, and have deep convictions about it. And just so much of the foundations of my faith were, were born there. And just my love for our people and our culture were born in, in, in that space. And it prepared me, too, because when I got to college and started encountering questions my brain couldn't answer, I, I, it didn't cause a crisis of faith for me. It came to you and I have talked about this in other right. settings. Right. For me, I was like, I've met Jesus. And so, you know, you can present to me these questions that I can't answer. I may never have an answer in this life. But I can one thing I can say is that I have met Jesus and I've witnessed his power in my life and his word has been proven to be true to me. And that's all I need. Amen. 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 So, Timothy, you're trying to tell us that you've been saved all your life. You've been saved all your life. I mean, (laughs) I know it's a testament. This is a covenant keeping God. You know what I mean? Like he, he saves children. Like, you know what I mean? Like whole families i think that's that's important for people to hear that to know that it's beautiful mm-hmm. yeah, yeah for sure. it, indeed well, it is and, and and like i said you know I'm, I'm human so there are times where i've fallen short and i still fall short of god's glory but um i've been trying to live faithfully for as long as i can remember um for to as best as i can understand that yeah the, the, well the, the very desire to want to live for god is a god-given desire yes it is um, and so yeah and, and you know a person with an encounter. I mean, you, you just, you know, you, you, you can't, uh, you can't talk away uh, an encounter and experience exactly. with the resurrected Christ. Exactly. I think those of us, even if we've experienced disappointment, trauma, church hurt, you name it. Um, when you have, when you've experienced the resurrected Christ, it, you just know, you might have questions, but yes. you know <laughs> that Jesus is very, very real. So I'm just so thankful for you sharing that that testimony today and giving us your uh, 
your credentials, your 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 church street cred, because it, it's deep, yeah. it's deep. Well, and and not only that, you did you did mention a little bit of Morehouse love in there. I, I did, did. As, a, as a double dip HBCU woman myself. Come on now. I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about just your educational journey, and because oh, sure. I think it's so important for believers to know how we can put our studies and our scholarship in conversation with our faith. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll try to be brief because I can tell long stories, but um, primary and secondary school um, was primarily in Georgia and, and Tennessee. So I was born in Memphis and like I mentioned, and went to public school. And I got a, by my estimation, I got a good education. I was fortunate to go to a good public school in my area. And then when I was nine, we moved to the Atlanta area. And my parents had the presence of mind to know that we may not be able to buy the biggest house in an affluent white suburb, but we understand that that's likely where our children will have the best opportunity to get a good education. Mm. And so they, so when we moved to Atlanta, they looked around and, and said, what are the best school districts, public school districts? And so they found one in North Georgia, about 30 minutes north of Atlanta. And so that's where we moved. And my sister and I went to public school. So I did public school from there. And when I moved to Georgia, that was a bit different for me because when I was in Memphis, I would say close to 40% of my classmates were black. But when I got to Alpharetta, Georgia, I am one of a handful of black students. And most of the time that I was in school. And so just by way of example, when I went to high school, my high school had 3,200 students and there were less than 100 black people the year that I graduated. So it was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, now there were about 10% about of the school's students were people of color, but again, it's just yeah. sprinkling in black people. And so for me, when it was time to consider going to college, um, Morehouse was the school that I always wanted to go to. When I was a small child, I was fascinated with King especially growing up in Memphis and Atlanta, two cities that were really pivotal for him. The, I was always surrounded by stories of him. In Memphis, we got what I feel as though a greater level of education around him early on. And similarly in Atlanta, we did as well. And so when I learned he went to Morehouse, that was the school I wanted to go to. And then when we moved to Atlanta, for some reason, the Atlanta area, that, that's what made it real to me that I could actually go. And so I applied um, and my, my parents, too, also wanted me to go. I will say that my father, my father immigrated from Ghana and he went to graduate school at Lemoyne Owen in, in Memphis. And that's actually what brought him to Memphis. And so he understood the value of an HBCU. And mm -hmm. so he wanted to go. And my mama wanted a Morehouse man. So it's just kind of like um, so. So those two things were pivotal. So I applied and was fortunate to get in. And for me, Morehouse was one of the foundational experiences in my life. It really, so much of the man that I am today, I can attribute to the experiences I had at Morehouse. My faith was deepened because I found other people who zealously loved God and we formed some campus ministries together. I got an incredible education and that was grounded and rooted in our perspective and a love for black people, but still mm -hmm. was rigorous in the scholarship. And also met some lifelong friends in that in that area too, and so that that was that was undergrad for me in a nutshell. And then from there, while I was an undergrad, I volunteered uh, for an educational nonprofit in the area. And then when I graduated, I worked for them for two years. And that educational nonprofit, its offices were housed in a private school in Atlanta. 
and the headmaster there, he, he met me and um, God gave me favor with him and he wanted me to teach a class at the school. So this is like my first experience being bivocational. There you go. So I was working for the educational nonprofit. And then I was also teaching a class in the school. And so he says, you have a natural ability to teach. And he was trying to get me to stay long term. But around this time, I was feeling called to go to law school. And um, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I went into undergrad. My parents, my parents uh, asked me before I went into undergrad, like, what do you want to be? And I told them. I want to be an artist. And my mama said, I'm not paying for you to go to undergrad for you to paint pictures and draw. Like, you can do that on your free time. And my dad said, I think you'll be a good lawyer. And so I, so I did the whole track for being a lawyer in undergrad. I did political science, concentration pre-law. And so back to when I'm working at this educational nonprofit, after working there two years, I went on to law school. And so I went to Villanova for law school. And um, that's what brought me to the Northeast. And my plan was to come up here to study and then go back to Atlanta the day after graduation, but Guy had other plans. As always, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the God of the remix. The God, the God of the remix, yeah, listen. Ficky, Ficky, yes. <laughs> God of the remix, I know this, I know this God very well. Yes. Um, so. <laughs> he knows you. Okay, the turntables might wobble, but they don't fall down. Come on, Come on. that's a whole sermon right there. Down. <laughs> I think actually this is a good place to take a break because yes. I got a question for you, Timothy, okay. that I that I know is gonna yeah anyway that that, okay. that so let's, I okay, need so to let's pay some bills to take a break yeah when we come back so let me do a quick commercial break and we Absolutely. will be right back so y'all don't go nowhere keep it locked we'll be right back <laughs> touch the earth by Drew Jackson Luke nine verses one through two. My father says more with his hands than he does with his lips. I cannot recall him sitting me down to teach me about love, but I watched him tend to my mother as cancer spread through her insides. He cried when her breath left her, though he never lectured me about grief. I am still grieving my mother, still gleaning what my father taught me. Gather it from memory, let it touch the earth. In his most recent collection of poetry, Drew Jackson continues the project he began in God Speaks Through Wombs, reflecting on the Gospel of Luke through poetry. Touch the Earth picks up in chapter 9 and continues through the end of Luke's Gospel. Part protest poetry, part biblical commentary, Jackson presents the Gospel story in all its liberative power. Truce Table listeners can save 30% off and get free U.S. shipping on Touch the Earth when they order at ivpress.com using promo code TRUTH23. That's promo code TRUTH23 when you order at ivpress.com. Our NAACP Image Award-nominated book, Truce Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, is making waves and shifting culture. I closed this book feeling like I had just partaken in a multi-course meal filled with grace and the courage to carry on. And I believe you'll finish this book feeling the same way. Morgan Harper Nichols, artist and poet. Buy Truce Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love and Liberation at our website or wherever books are sold. And we are back at the table with Timothy Welbeck. Yes. Uh, you know, Timothy, I, um, you know, hearing your faith story and your journey and the ways that the Lord has planted the seeds for your own 
bi bivocational praxis and mm. um yeah just juggling these things you know uh well i always have you've always been able to hold um how can i say um two things can be true at once at the same time. <laughs> yes. You've always been very good with nuance <laughs> and holding things together that, that seem that, that are seemingly intention. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, your work as a civil rights attorney, I've always been, um, fascinated, uh, by the, uh, projects and the issues mm -hmm. that you take on and that you champion. Um, and I know, uh, that in the past you've worked with, um, worked for uh, mm -hmm. CARE, which is an organization that helps to support uh, our Muslim neighbors, yes. right? Um, who experience uh, Islamophobia and all types of uh, discrimination. And I would love to hear from you um, as a lawyer, as a civil rights attorney, but also um, as a Christian about mm -hmm. how you approach your work and how you mm -hmm. approach your advocacy work, yes. um, legal advocacy work on behalf of those who are uh who are even outside of the faith how do you do that i know that some some christians have a hard time you know that's true with that and so how do, how do you do that my brother that's a great question i've always felt that christians are most useful in non-christian spaces and that's no disrespect to ministers and pastors and things like that but i believe that we are most um well positioned at times to show the glory of God in places where people don't expect to encounter it. Mm. Especially like if you look at like the apostles and just some of the prophets in the Bible, oftentimes they are out in the marketplace, so to speak, or sometimes they were even bivocational. And so I already had that mindset. And then for me, um, so when I got into civil rights law at, at the juncture in which I did, I had been teaching and writing about things that ultimately my practice encompassed for a while. And I wanted to get to a point where I was saying, you know, I want to actually be involved in what's happening and not just teaching and speaking and writing about them. And I have some friends and colleagues who are civil rights attorneys, too. And just so just seeing their work inspired me also. And one day in um, 2017, I saw an opportunity to apply and I did and um, CARE graciously hired me. And for me, the way that I look at it is that um, these are my neighbors. And so the Good Samaritan story is something that I return to oftentimes in my advocacy for our Muslim brothers and sisters, in part because they are at times some of the most targeted and marginalized people in society. They need targeted and, sp and specific advocacy. That's right. And they need allies outside of their masjids. They need people who are not just Muslims saying that Muslims are, are disrespected, they're targeted, um, they are typecasted and all of that. And so for me, I take I take great joy in an opportunity to being able to demonstrate my faith by my works in that capacity to show them that 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 a Christian can not only advocate for you, but do so lovingly. And and in some capacities, that's helped to transform their perception of Christians, because so many of us, unfortunately, have said some really terrible things about Islam and Obviously, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. And so we have differences of faith. Um, and so like we differ from Muslims in many ways um, in terms of theology. But we can still communicate that better than we do sometimes. And I feel like a lot of our brothers and sisters in the faith have fallen short in, in that and even um, added to some of what's happening. And so I get to counterbalance that image because oftentimes 
many of the people who are doing some of the worst things to Muslims that I'm having to fight against are people who are professed Christians. And, and so, um, so, so that's, that's how I guess I, I go about doing the job in that way. I know I do have some, some Christian friends who are like, how are you working for a Muslim organization? Like, how are you doing that again? And, and you go into masjids, you go into mosques regularly. And like, what do you do when they pray? Like, you know, like all of those types of things. But um, for me, I, I just take it as an opportunity to take Jesus to these different places. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, it's just it's just a good reminder for us, I think, Timothy, that um, historic Christianity at its very inception is a minority, ragtag, highly persecuted group that would not have been able to imagine Christian organizations, Christian yes. universities, so-called fake notions of Christian nations. Mm -hmm. uh, that is just, and so it was, it was assumed from its beginning that we would be salt and light in various places, having to know how to honor and love our neighbors with the assumption that they would believe different that we, than we believe. And I think um, many of us are uh, malnourished and spiritually immature in that area because of the consequences of living in a, in a place like the United States. So mm -hmm. it's a great reminder. And I just want to commend you publicly for oh, the importance you. of that work and letting your light shine amongst those precious image bearers. Um, yeah. And speaking of which, when you talked about the ways in which it's often Christians mm -hmm. that are mistreating mm -hmm. our Muslim neighbors, we also know from the research, it's often Christians who are engaging in the worst forms of racism and, and racial injustice as well. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about anti-racism. Okay, you about, <laughs> you about to get me worked up right now. <laughs> as, I, as I segue and come to my clothes, but I, you know, and, and I got a book on the topic, you know, I, you know, this is the, the, the world that I kind of live in, in so, at, at times. And so I want to talk with you about how your faith informs the work of anti-racism and also how you push back, how you intentionally push back around some of the propaganda that is everywhere in resistance to anti-racism work. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Like where to begin? So you are, Christina, you are so right in that some of the worst perpetrators of racism are self-professed Christians, uh, particularly when we're talking about in the West. And it's literally from the beginning. Some of the earliest slave ships bore the name of our Lord on there. Yeah. Um, slavery was justified by Christian churches. The Pope blessed some of the first slave ships in the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. And um, and beyond that, just so much of the history of the church in America has found ways to endorse some of the greatest crimes in recorded history as it relates to shadow slavery, Jim Crow, and all of his progeny. And so just in that historic sense, we see a lot of that manifesting today so much of the work of racism is taking roots in churches. And y'all know this firsthand. Um, just yeah. you all, you all, you all witness this personally. Akimini bears the brunt of this every time she speaks out publicly, she sees this. And so I think it's incumbent upon Christians to understand that all people are created in the image of God and that when we are working against racism, we are working to honor and affirm the dignity of all people. And we are seeking to do so from the lens of faith. As so many of the titans of civil rights advocacy and just movements for liberation were believers. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Phyllis Wheatley, Frederick Douglass, 
so many of the lions of the civil rights movement, Fannie Lou Hamer, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph David Abernathy, Andrew Young, um, Joseph Lowry, these are um, Ida B. Wells Barnett. These are people who believed in the Lord and whose faith drew them to not only advocating for people, but doing what it took to push society towards the direction of equality. And that's what we should be advocating for today. Christians should be at the forefront of this fight because not only do we honor the Lord in that way, but it's also um, a great history. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in that way. Mm-mm-mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And if I just, if I could follow up. Yes, um, please. Especially in light of the nature of your work and mm-hmm. this, this really strategic and important historical position that you currently hold mm-hmm. at Temple University. I, if you could educate our listeners, you know, we have typically people who are listening are, are going to be at least uh, at least anecdotally, maybe not academically anti-racist mm-hmm. in terms of having those underpinnings, right, from a sociological standpoint, but but like their inclinations are, yes. are you know, they're like, this is a problem. If they listen into truth tables, yes. like, unless, unless they're a hater and, you know, and watch out, <laughs> repent, repent. Today is the day to repent. Yes. Um, but if you could, if, if you could just give us some bare bones, some scaffolding of what anti-racism is, mm-hmm. Um, it'll be an opportunity for us to push back on the anti-anti-racism propaganda that is well-funded. Well and it's true that Akimini faces this a lot, and this is a part of my work as well. So uh, the ugliest stuff that we get is typically related to uh, our public work resisting racism and then obviously misogynoir. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and before I get into some scaffolding, I just want to just commend you both for the courage that you have to, to take the stances that you do, because you're exactly right. Not only do you all bear the brunt of this, but you all are getting it disproportionately because you're black women and because you're outspoken. Definitely. And they're just they're racist out there, but there are racists out there who will not say things to me that they will say to you. And and they do that in part because, like you said, of Massage Noir. And so sure. just at its core, that's something that we have to combat. When one thing in, in terms of scaffolding, one thing I try to get people to understand is there's a difference between racist behavior or ideas and racism. When we're talking about racist ideas, we're talking about the belief that one group of people are inherently superior or inferior because of perceived biological or genetic traits. So you believe a group of people are superior because of these immutable traits that we now categorize as racial identities and things like that. That's a racist idea. But when we start talking about structures and systems and institutions, when they begin to embody racist ideas, that's where the ism comes into play. So when we say that the criminal justice system disproportionately criminalizes black and brown people, that a black person who commits the same crime as a white person is going to get a longer sentence. They're more likely to be charged, more likely to be tried, more likely to be convicted, and then they'll get a longer sentence for the same crime. That's racism in practice. When black women have a disproportionately high mortality rate during childbirth, um, irrespective of income, we're looking at something, and we're looking at how race is embedding itself into the practice of medicine. When banks say we're not going to lend to black people or we're going to have predatory lending for areas that black people disproportionately live, that's racism. So 
when we say we're in the work of anti-racism, we're saying that we are about the work of combating how racist ideas find their ways into systems and trying to undo the harm that it does to people because it has real and lasting impacts on people. One of the things I, I tell people often is that race is not real in a biological sense. There is no biological confirmation of the racial categories that we've created over time. And they, even, they are even malleable and arbitrary and, and they change based on our whims. Politics. Yeah, <laughs> politics, because it's really, it's really about the money power and discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, that hasn't stopped people from creating pseudoscience to try to explain race. It hasn't stopped people from trying to still use these categories to disenfranchise people. And so that's what we're talking about when we say anti-racist. And we're saying that it's incumbent upon members of society to fight against the ways the systems and structures and institution embody racist beliefs because it has actual harm. Race isn't real in a biological sense, but it's real in a social and political sense. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to fight against. And not only fight against it, but we have to be active. That's why the term anti-racism exists, because right. it's not just good enough to say racism is bad, because it is bad. And for us Christians, it's sinful. <laughs> right, wicked. <laughs> um, so it's not, but it's not just good enough to say that. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll say about this, because like I can talk about this all day, but Christians in the West understand this about everything else. Come on. Because everything else that they believe is a social ill, they don't believe it's just good enough to say this is wrong. But we'll mm -hmm. preach sermons about it. We'll, we'll make conferences about it. We'll mm -hmm. petition the government to lean Organize. in the direction that we believe that the, the Bible is saying. So we'll try to change laws to fit our understanding of the Bible. We do that about everything else, all the hot topic culture, war issues and things like that. We we say that we're going to take an advocacy standpoint, but as soon as you start talking about race, it's just preach the gospel. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just like, you know, why why are you being divisive? Why is everything about race? Because it is. Because it is. And, and Christianity in America, white Christianity in America, and dominant uh, Anglo Christianity in America is malformed and malforming. Mm -hmm. And so um, it it is it's designed to um, be able to exist and uh, at the same time uh, as people are oppressed. It's, it's yes. designed for that, it's shaped and malformed in that way, and it's malforming. So we have a malformed Christian ethic from one of the largest groups of Christians in the country. Um, so the r racial orthopraxis is just in the trash can, <laughs> in the trash <laughs> can. So it's thank so you so much for that education that we just received from the director of the Anti-Racism Center at Temple University. Come on, my brother, be employed, be employed. Oh, listen, Glory thank God. you. This, That's right. She said, "Be employed." <laughs> yes. I mean, to hold this position too is just, is is such a great honor, and I really am just grateful for God for it. Um, I tell people all the time, I, I feel like Joseph right now, and just the way that God has elevated me in this moment. And there's just a whole story. Kimini's very familiar with the story, like yeah. leading up to this moment. But even beyond that, it's just so much of my life's work, I feel like culminates and um, or. Uh, it, it, it not only culminates, but just it coalesces in what I'm doing right now. My legal advocacy, my scholarship, yeah. um, my public advocacy, um, even my art, all of these things come together in what I'm doing here. And so I'm just I'm grateful and thrilled for the opportunity as well. Yeah. You know, um, Timothy, I would love to. Um, it's beautiful to hear that. I think I hope that's encouraging for our listeners, too, mm -hmm. who might be 
you know, waiting or being in the valley and waiting for God yes. to elevate you, you know, mm-hmm. you can still hold on and know that God got something special for you. Yes. That, you know, God doesn't waste anything, you know, and that all of those gifts, all those passions, all those dreams, they will come together, you know, mm-hmm. at his appointed time, you know. Yeah, but, at his um, appointed time, yes. You know, Timothy, I, you know, uh, at thinking about Black History Month 2023, mm-hmm. um, although it was a personal, uh, a, a good one personally for Truth Table on that, um, on that tip, I would say for us as a people, it was a hard one. Um, Mm -hmm. seeing what happened to Tyree Nichols, um, the brother who, um, was unfortunately, um, killed, um, just at the hands of, um, other black men. And there were other, you know, there were other, I think, I think there was also a white male involved, some other people, you know, involved as well, you know, in, um, his death, these are black male cops, you know, um, that, that killed him. Uh, he was a believer. You know, so I believe he's in the um, resting in the bosom of Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, but him being, you know, in Memphis and you being from Memphis and you being a civil rights attorney who, you know, interacts with this type of news um, daily. What was unique, more unique, let me say, this is not this is not a complete outlier, but because uh, this does happen um, where, where black cops do assault um other um, black males and black women, mm-hmm. absolutely. But this is the one that's really, you know, uh, yes. got the 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 country and even the world's attention. Can you talk to us as the um, the director, you know, of the Anti Racism Center yeah. about how people can make sense of this? You know, like, yeah. well, it, well, it couldn't be racism because they're black. People love to say that. How did this work? And can you answer those questions? Some people are really genuine and they really are confused, yeah. right? And some people just really don't know. And then there's some that. You know, <laughs> that yes. may not be as genuine. But can you talk about that dynamic and how yeah. people can wrap their head around uh, that terrible, terrible um, um, act of violence? Wicked. Act of it violence. is wickedness. And I'm glad that you call it that. So one of the things I begin with is that Americans are taught to lionize police officers. Mm-hmm. And so um, some of my colleagues will call it propaganda from the very beginning. Uh, every children's library will have a book saying something along the lines of police officers are your friends. We have to cartoons and television shows. Baby Shark and Paw Patrol. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Paw Patrol. For me, it was cops, um, the cartoon and cops, the reality show or Law and Order. Even if you think about the framing of Law and Order, you see someone commit a crime at the beginning of Law and Order. And so you see the crime committed. So you already understand that the presumption of guilt doesn't need to be um, questioned because you saw mm. the crime committed. And so then anything the officer does to bring this person to justice, it seems to be justified. And that helps to frame how people look at policing. So that's one thing just in and of itself. The other thing is that the institution of policing in America arose from slave patrols in Northern Virginia in the 1700s. And people really wrestle with that. But it's important to look at that history because the racial dynamics at play and controlling the movement and freedom and even the legality of black bodies and whatever space they may find themselves in still finds its way into policing today. It's why we have racial profiling. It's why disproportionately black and brown people 
bear the brunt of police brutality. It's why Black people are more likely to be killed by police. It's why they're even more likely to be unarmed when killed by police. And then when you look at the way racist ideas find their ways into societies, things like Black people have a higher tolerance for pain or Black people have a greater propensity to commit criminal acts, these presumptions also will find their ways into policing. So ultimately, when you're looking at a system, it doesn't matter what the individual cog in the system with how they identify. If they're operating within the system, they can still uphold the various aspects of the system. And so if we're looking in a historical sense, policing has racist origins. You might know a police officer who is a noble and brave citizen. You might know a police officer who risks their life every day for people they may never meet again. And that person should be applauded for doing their job well. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mitigate the fact that police officers in this country kill three people every day that we know of and that they brutalize dozens more every single day. And disproportionately, the people that they brutalize are black and brown people. And as it relates to Tyree Nichols, people say, well, how can black officers be racist? And it's black officers can operate within a system that is racist and engage in racist behavior. Some people have begun to speculate that one of the officers who led in the brutalization of Tyree Nichols knew him. And even if that is true, and that they targeted him because of personal animus towards him, I still will say that I cannot fathom a day where black police officers would brutalize a white man like that on camera and think they could get away with it. That's right. And so that's the other way that the racism works. The idea that you can personally target a black man, literally beat him to death, laugh while you're doing it, and not expect to face any consequences. Mm. So both sides of the coin, however you justify it, they didn't know him or they did know him. They can still harbor racist beliefs or uphold a racist system in the way that they behave towards him. And Timothy, even about the way this, another way that the racist system works is the how quickly <laughs> those cops were charged. Yes, right? come on, talk and about And so, that. and how that system is now working against them. Now, it, in other cases where those where are where non-black cops are not charged mm-hmm. as quickly, yeah. as swiftly, um, or even you know at the same uh, uh, degree, you know, and so that's just it's such a trip to just to watch this hey, system Jiminy, You hit the nail on the head. One of my oldest friends is Lee Merritt and he handles a lot of high profile police killings. Uh, he represents a lot of families. Um, everyone from Botham Jean's family to uh, Tatiana Jefferson's family to Ahmaud Arbery's family, um, Breonna Taylor, a whole lot of families in between. And one thing in my conversations with him about his work we, that we often hear is just how much of a, a fight it usually is even to get the initial officer identified. Usually it's a fight to get the name, even for the family. Sometimes the families have to fight and threaten litigation just to get the name of the officer, to get access to the footage, and then to have even some hope that there will be a reprimand is literally a fight. Sometimes it's years long to get people identified, Mm -hmm. reprimanded, potentially charged. And in the the instance of Tyree Nichols, these brothers' faces were plastered all over international media. And again, like a lot of us like to say, they messed around and they found out because that's right. ultimately that's the other part of the system. When it's done with you, it will discard of you. That's and right. so you did what it needed you to do. And now they have no use for you anymore. And so 
they thought the system would protect them in the way it's protected their colleagues in other instances. But in this particular moment, it was expedient to discard them. And that's what happened here. And then one other thing I'll say is, too, Kimmy, you mentioned that there was a white officer involved. That's, again, you're exactly right, because he maced Tyree Nichols, and that started the whole interaction. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we, we didn't even know about him until people kept saying, look at the video again. There's exactly. another hand involved. That's right. And so even like the fact that they kept harboring on the actions of these five officers and, and excluded the sixth demonstrates what we're talking about right now. Because if it really was about holding the officers accountable, they would have named that sixth officer initially. But it took that fight and people noticing the video to say, wait a minute, like, what about him? Yeah, it's just uh, the psychologist in me is thinking about just how highly traumatic that particular incident was and is for so many people. And for those of us, particularly who are descendants of the transatlantic slave trade, the um, yeah, it just. It just it echoes back to the black overseers. Yes, it does. Who were commanded to do the whipping That's and right. the raping and the brutalizing, and so I think if you feel that in your DNA and you know it, it is uh, this this case is particularly traumatic yes, for Black America, um, as we as we see someone who looks like our sons being killed by someone who looks like our sons. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, just incredibly painful. I Even right. as people are listening right now, as you've even heard us talk about this, I just want you to take good care of yourself. Yes. I want you to breathe deeply. Breathe. Yes, that's right. I want you to be reminded that no one knows brutality. No one knows injustice by the state, like our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And in the resurrection, even as we talk about the necessity of earthly justice now, we get glimpses of the eternal justice breaking into this very moment. And so we're going to cry for it. We're going to plead for it. We're going to march for it. We're going to pray for it. And we thank God for lawyers uh, like Timothy and others um, who in many ways walk in a legacy of the justice that Christ's resurrection has brought to us. And so I just wanted to say that to those who are listening, because even this conversation, I I can feel it in my body. Yes. just reflecting on this this precious precious life. It was pain, so painful. I want to yes. I want to segue though to one of the ways in which as we wrap up our time and it has been so good talking to you, Timothy. Um, <laughs> Likewise, such a pleasure. As because one of the ways that we get over, one of the ways that we make it over, one of the ways that we keep our minds and our bodies healthy and we stay connected is through the creative arts. And Kimmy and I, we love the creative arts. It's just a true stable thing. And we know that you are an artist. You are a, a man of music, a man of rap and poetry, uh, r- rhythm and poetry, the, the original and official name of what rap actually is. Be educated, people. Be educated. Be educated. <laughs> A lot of folks don't know that, but I want I want to lay, lay that out there for the community. Let my people learn. Let the people learn today. But Timothy, talk a little bit as we as we wrap up our time. I because I want the people to know, like you can be a lawyer and a rapper. <laughs> so talk to about it. Yeah. So um, you can be. I, I am. I am proof positive of that. And for me, it wasn't by design. If you had asked 16 year old Timothy, what is he going to do? I would say I'm going to be a professional rapper until I'm tired of rapping and maybe I'll do something else. But again, guy had other designs. And so I went to college and and was still rapping, went to law school and and just never stopped. And so for me, it, it gives me an opportunity to have another means to communicate what is important to me. And so much of my music 
it, it, it teeters on the balance of discussions of the world as it is and as it should be, while also serving as another outlet for me to just communicate and express the dynamics of a follower of Christ, a husband, a father, a working professional. And so my music reflects all of that. And so I like to say I make music for grownups. Um, yes. So my. We need it. <laughs> listen, if you have little or young in your name, God bless you. Um, <laughs> your music is not for me. I'm 40. I have a wife. I have three children. I have, I have multiple jobs and a mortgage. Multiple <laughs> jobs. Say it again. So, multiple jobs. <laughs> even duty. Yeah, so like your, your music isn't for me and that's okay. Your music can be for somebody else and that's fine. But there is place and space. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's place and space um, for the art in that way. And that's one thing that I love about some of the current conversations in hip hop are about the ability for the art form to age. Hip hop turns 50 this year in August, August 11th. And we gratefully are seeing some of our legends grow old and some of um, some of them regrettably have been lost entirely too soon. Um, we lament that. But I think about um, rappers like Black Thought and Nas and, and Jay-Z. Um, who are at the forefront of the culture, some of the bigger names who are in their 50s or approaching their 50s, who are still having um, vibrant careers and people like Queen Latifah who've been able to pivot into other things. And so that's a beautiful thing to see the artist age in that way. And so for me, my art has just always just been another outlet and another way that I can honor the call of God in my life. is He gave me a gift. I want to use it. I like to say I want to die empty. I don't want to lay to waste anything that God has given me that I could use for his glory. And so, so that's, so, that, so that's my, I guess, how I factor into with my art. Um, my most recent project is um, a live recording that I did last year. It's called Train of Thought. And so I fused my music with John Coltrane. So I got a live jazz band together. And five piece. Go ahead, Kimini. Come on now. Come on now. So um, we love Coltrane. Come on. So love hey, Coltrane. Love Coltrane. And mm-hmm. so we so we fused his music with mine and we did nine of my older songs. My wife a long time ago told me I should do this, that I should assemble a jazz band, do a live album. She said some of your older songs didn't get the attention they deserved. And so mm-hmm. um so I listened Listen to my wife. To I listened to my wife. <laughs> I applied for a grant and I received the grant. And um, so that helped me jumpstart mm-hmm. it as part of the Black Music City series. And it, it gives creatives in the Philadelphia area an opportunity to do their art while honoring someone from the Philadelphia art scene. And so for me, it was really providential that John Coltrane mm-hmm. was who I wanted to honor because he and I both lived in Philadelphia for 15 years. And wow. so um, wow. I released it on February 15th, 215s. Um, mm-hmm. or 215. And then that's also Philadelphia's area code. That is. The main area code. So mm-hmm. that's my, you know, trying to do a little bit. <laughs> Look, Timothy be thanking you. Connections, connections. So making connections, but. That math is mathing. The math, the math was mathing. And, and, and it really was providential because that wasn't the initial release date, yeah. but it kind of worked out that way. And I'm really excited about it. I got, I got an opportunity to pull together some of my older songs and give them some new life and dimensions. And much of even what we talked about today finds its way into my music. So me discovering my racial identity and, and navigating how the world perceives me versus how I perceive myself, the mm-hmm. fight for justice, 
um, faithfully walking with the Lord, um, seeking to find love. What do you do with your love for the arts? All of these things are um, all, all of these things are kind of some some of the topics that make it into the music, even particularly for train of thought. So wonderful. So if if folks are listening right now, yes. they're going to immediately stop listening when they're done, when we're all done, y'all. Yes. And then they're going to want to go check out your music. So yeah. I want to let you tell us where we would find your music. Oh, absolutely. We can partake. I can find you online too. Yeah. You, you, find you, you online. Yep. And then I'm going to, I'm going to kick it over to Akimni because I think we're going to do something special. Now, you know, people who really know yeah. the show, they know that we have our black girl magics and our black women rising. Oh. And we have a fun segment at the end. We oh, have decided okay that we're going to reach into our fun segment bag for our brothers and, and pull out a question for you. So I'm going to, I'm going to let Kimberly figure out what she wants that question to be, but Joe, we'll end it on that note. But why don't you let us know right now where, where to get your music and where to follow your work? So all of my music is available anywhere that you stream music. So Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, YouTube, anywhere that you would access music online, you can find it there. I also have a website, timothywellbeck.com. There's a section on my website that can direct you there also. I have a Bandcamp page, too, that kind of like directs you to all of that. But anywhere that you listen to music, you can you can listen to it there. And hopefully you can listen to it, enjoy it, get to know me a little bit better in that regard. And I just, again, just want to say just how much I appreciate being able to come on with you all today. I've been um, watching from afar from the very beginning when this was just an idea. And so it's, it's beautiful to see it come to fruition and glad to have a seat at the table today. Oh, and we're grateful to have you, Timothy, really. I mean, you've supported the table and behind the scenes <laughs> in so many ways, you know? So, so much of what True Stable does would not have been possible actually uh, without the help and the legal help and support of Timothy Welbeck, for real, for real. So, um, so we want to give you your flowers when they are due, my brother. And they oh, are. Oh, thank you so due. much. So, you know, I'm not sway, so I'm not going to make you bust a freestyle <laughs> for us. But <laughs> that would be time, though. I am. I am going to throw out a force fun question for you. Okay, let's do Just that. one. Yes. And I hope you're ready to answer. Okay. okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right now. One gotta go. Oh, I knew you were gonna do this to this brother. I knew you were gonna do this to this brother. One gotta go. I gotta do it. I gotta do it. These are the hardest. Me and Timothy have music conversations ad nauseum. So one gotta go are the hardest. Oh my goodness. One gotta go. Okay. Whitney. Aretha. (laughs) Look at his face. Shaka. Anita. One oh, gotta go. So out of order. It's so wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Just yeah, just what Christina said. This is this question is out of order. It is. So I just I just want I want that to be established. Um, and I want also these iconic women to know um, that I have great love and appreciation for them. That's right. So my understanding of what music should be has been based on their iconic discographies. That's right. And um, the world is better because they chose to make music. So I just want to get that out the way. Um, If I have to let one go, I would let go of Shaka. Um, Because Whitney, to me, is the greatest. And like just 
era that I grew up in, just how I encountered her music, her songs speak to me in a very special way. And um, Aretha Franklin was one of my first introductions to music and it's so much of what I understand black music to be. Um, we called her the queen for a reason. And so I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom getting rid of her. And then from there, it just came down to personal preference. And I like some of Anita Baker's music a little bit more than Shaka Khan's. And so, so that's there you hard. Go. There you go. Well, you know, you are, you are in the majority. Okay. I'll tell you that. You know, who, who yeah. they oft, often say Shaka. Okay. Not always, but often. So, so, <laughs> so take solace, my brother. Take solace. Okay. I mean, Shaka, we love you. So, Shaka, if you ever see or hear this, know that we love you. Absolutely. And like, we're not it's trying to get you out of here. We want to wrap you in plastic and preserve you for as long. As <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do and so. will. So, we will bubble wrap Shaka. Yes, yes bubble wrap Shaka. We honor you. We got to do that. So, Timothy, we thank you so thank much you. for coming to sit at the table with us. Can you tell our listeners how they can follow you on social oh, media sure. and follow your work at the Anti-Racism Center, too? Tell them your socials so they can follow you. So, absolutely. So, my socials is just my name, Timothy Welbeck, W-E-L-B-E-C-K. So, I'm on Instagram and Twitter most regularly. I'll be on Twitter for as long as it's around. I know Apartheid Clyde trying to get rid of it. Okay. Um, but, I'm, so, I'm on, I'm on those two most regularly. <laughs> Ah, I'm cackling. My goodness. So I, I am on both of those um, forums. I do have a Facebook page. I don't check that as regularly as I should, but I'm going to try to check that more regularly. <laughs> but all of those are just my name, Timothy Welbeck. I have a website, timothywelbeck.com. There's a means to contact me there. It's also um, can direct you to my other work. Um, Temple Center for Anti-Racism is a part of the Institutional Diversity, Equity, Advocacy and leadership initiative at Temple, we call it IDEAL for short. Uh, much of that can be found at diversity.temple.edu. So much of what we're doing can be found there. And then um, CARE um, Philadelphia's is just carepa.com. Um, and so, or carephilly.org, both of those um, take you to the same place. But um, that's where you can find me. And so if you're looking for me, you can find me there. I'll do my best to get in touch with you if you reach out to me there. Um, sometimes I'm a little slow to respond, but it's not for a lack of desire. Just uh, it's a lot going on. He got on multiple jobs. He, he got 10 jobs he talked about on this episode. I got He's multiple jobs. <laughs> You're a busy brother. You're a busy And three kids. I mean, what, what, okay. what else you want? I got three kids. That's a lot. Yes, I got a wife, three children. Uh, 5011 jobs. Uh, listen, 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 active church member. Look, good, <laughs> yeah, a good yeah. friend. Yes, ma'am. Out here being a black man in America. Listen, he busy. He get I'm, back I'm, to you I'm, when he can. I'm, I'm, <laughs> listen, that's what it is. But I would love to connect with the listeners of the show. It's, like I said, it's, it's, it's truly an honor to be on the show. So yes. Well, we thank you so much, Timothy, for taking a seat at the table with us. Um, and of course, to our sisters, we want to thank y'all for taking a seat at the table with us, too. So let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts or Instagram us your thoughts or DM us your thoughts about this episode. Uh, let's hear it for the boys. Timothy Welbeck, ESQ, um, using the hashtag Truth Table. Black women, did y'all know we have a Facebook discipleship group exclusively for black women on Facebook? Well, now you do. Make sure to follow Truth Table on Facebook and join our Facebook group today. Invite your homegirls too. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Truth Table or email us your thoughts at info at truthstable.com. Don't forget 
forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account, so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable. Or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truth Table's audio producer is Joshua Heath. Our video producer is Daryl Bradford. And Truth Table's executive producers and hosts are Akemini Uen and Christina Emmonson. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.